Thank you, Pastor Carl. (laughs) Pastor Dave, that makes me more nervous than uh, knowing I have to speak on Sunday morning. You can just call me Dirtball Dave, saved by grace. That's, That's fine by me. Good morning, everybody. How's everybody this morning? There we go. Galatians, how are you doing? I uh, challenged you a couple weeks ago to read a chapter a night so that every week you would read a, a, the whole book through, and this is our fourth uh, session, and so that means you should have read it through three times. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't want peer pressure. I don't want anybody to lie, but, but I just encourage you to make Galatians your own. Uh, read a chapter a night and uh, just pick up a different translation, different version, and make Galatians your own. It is a very powerful book, very worthwhile book. All right, question for you. What defines you? What defines you or what establishes your self-worth? Is it your job? Is it your home? Your car, money, your family, your friends, your appearances, or maybe it's your health. What is it that feeds into your self-worth? Because what feeds into your self-worth is going to drive the priorities of your life, And what's a priority to you is going to tell you how you're going to spend your time and your money. And I'm going to come back to this or mention it during the message, but uh, the chapter, uh, the part we're looking at today in Galatians, uh, one uh, commentary said that this is the theological core of the book of Galatians. And I don't know about you, but anytime I hear the word theology, even as a seminary grad, my eyes roll back in my head and I just, it's just, theology is not very exciting to me. But I think Paul in this passage does a pretty good job of conveying thoughts about the law and faith. He weaves in this story of his encounter, his confrontation with Peter. Paul shares a little bit of his heart. And of course, lurking in the background, the whole reason for the book of Galatians is the fact that the Judaizers, and those are people who sort of believed in Jesus, but they put a whole lot of emphasis on keeping the Jewish laws and tradition, they're in the background lurking. So what I wanted to do was I asked what defined you, and I'm going to point out a couple things that I think define some of the key people in uh, Galatians. So I'm going to start off with the Judaizers. What defined them? Well, as I said a few weeks ago, transition can be very difficult. The Jews were uh, transitioning from following Moses, and now they heard about Jesus, and it created a little bit of tension. Uh, The Jewish people by themselves normally but wrongly believed that they were entitled to salvation because they were descendants of Abraham. Now, the, uh, and the reason they get that from is uh, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, uh, God's chosen people, if you heard that, is, for you are a holy people to the Lord. Moses is talking to the Israelites. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, the Judaizers took that a, a step further and like, okay, yeah, we're descendants of Abraham, but we got to keep the law. So they were very big into keeping the law, and they were very adamant about circumcision. 
So the Judaizers, uh, their identity, there's a blank in your, if you see an underline, there's a blank in your folder, uh, is that the Judaizers, they define themselves by strict adherence to the Jewish law. Strict adherence to the Jewish law. It's all about the law. They quote chapter and verse. They're always assessing themselves or judging other people. The term we would use today is we would call them legalist. They're always going back to the book. What does the book say? Follow what the book says. So I get a question. Are you a legalist? Do you know somebody who's a legalist? Because legalists make themselves, legalistic people make themselves and others miserable. They're just no fun to be around. You always feel like you're under a microscope. You're never at peace. Now, the Judaizers, they were forcing their views, their values upon the Gentiles. And the reason they did that was that they felt the Gentiles could become a part of God's family if they converted to Judaism. And the way they did that was encouraged uh, circumcision. Now, they had a big influence on the Galatians. They, they made the Galatians go off course. They had an influence on, even on Barnabas uh, that uh, he separated himself from the Jewish people just like Peter did. But also, these legalists, these uh, Jewish uh, Judaizers had a big influence on the apostle Peter. Now this passage starts off, Peter withdraws from eating a meal with the Gentile believers. Um, and he seemed to be more interested in keeping peace with these hardcore Jews that were coming from Jerusalem than... Um, he did so at the expense of the unity with the Gentile believers. And this separation would obviously make the Gentiles or the Galatians feel like second-class citizens. And that was threatening the unity of the church. And Paul recognized that you don't, we don't want to separate people based on race or any kind of segregation because it stabs at the heart of the gospel. Unfortunately, today in America, right now, 11 o'clock-ish, is the most segregated time in America as white people gather in their churches, African-Americans in their churches, Koreans in their churches, and so on. And that's not the way it's supposed to be. And I remember the first time I walked into Calvary here just seeing the mix of people, and it was a beautiful thing. And uh, we're not doing this because it's some politically correct thing or some quota thing, but it's just the way it is and that's the way it should be because people from every tribe and nation are going to be following Jesus. And so when I look at the congregation, it's just like a, a piece of heaven. So, um, but segregation is not a, not a good thing. But anyway, Paul, uh, he broke from etiquette, and instead of quietly pulling Peter aside, he publicly rebukes him. And a lot of people discuss, you know, is that the right thing or the wrong thing to do? Well, my point is that that was not the first time that Peter was publicly rebuked. Back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus was with the disciples, and he asked them, who do you say that I am? Well, Peter, in one of his more brilliant moments, says, you are the Christ. Ding, 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 you know, he wins the prize. He hit the nail on the head. Then Jesus says, that's right, but let's keep this under wraps for now. And then Jesus goes on to say that he's going to be going to Jerusalem, and he's going to suffer and be rejected, and he's going to die. And then Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, no, 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 that's not, that's not what's going to happen. And then Jesus turns around, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, imagine somebody saying this to you, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. This public correction by 
of Peter by both Jesus and Paul, I think indicates that the errors that were being committed were quite serious, and it was very urgent that they be addressed. And in this case, Peter was essentially trying to keep Jesus from going to the cross, which is the whole point of uh, the core of Christianity. And then in Paul's case, confronting Peter was a matter of unity of the church. So I think the principle here is that the serious offenses committed in public need to be addressed in public to make sure that everyone is aware that there is a problem and that it won't be tolerated. And of course, that's a tough one to do. Leaders need to make that decision on the fly, and it's very difficult to do. But I, I don't think it's prohibited by Scripture. If it is urgent, it needs to be addressed. But anyway, going back to Galatians and, and Peter separating himself from the Gentiles, what was it that defined Peter? Well, it looks like uh, Peter defined himself by the company that he kept. He defined himself by the company that he kept. It appears that he was driven somewhat by peer pressure at this point. His desire for acceptance from the Judaizers was uh, greater than his need or desire to treat the Gentiles as equals. And we saw Peter given the peer pressure before. Remember in the courtyard of the high priest when Jesus was on trial? The servant girl said, do you know, or you, you know Jesus? And Peter denies him not once, but three times. So sometimes bad habits are very difficult to break. But it's interesting, Peter backed away from knowing the Gentiles at this encounter. Because if you look at his history, Peter was involved in the first conversion of a Gentile to Christianity. In Acts chapter 10, he goes to the house of Cornelius and preaches the gospel. There is no mention whatsoever of keeping the Jewish law or circumcision. So after his encounter with Cornelius, he goes back to Jerusalem. He tells the other apostles what happened. And they say, hey, that's cool, that's great. Again, there's no discussion of circumcision or keeping the law. A few years later, uh, the, the apostles in Jerusalem catch wind of hey, there's a Gentile church starting in the city of Antioch. And so they send Barnabas there to check it out. Barnabas comes back and says, hey, these guys are on course. And again, there's no mention by the apostles of which Peter was a part. No mention about keeping the law. And then in the beginning of Galatians 2, Paul with Titus, they come to Jerusalem, and Paul presents the message that he's been presenting to the to the Gentiles, and all the apostles, including Peter, endorse what he's doing. Again, there's no mention of keeping the law, no mention of circumcision. And then we have this encounter. Peter at, at the church of Antioch, Peter withdraws. Paul gives him, Paul rebukes him. And I think it, the message that Paul gave him actually made sense because... A few years later, the whole issue of where do Gentiles fit in, because again, the message of the gospel first came to the Jews, the Gentiles, where do they fit into this? And so at the Jerusalem Council, Acts 15 is a, is a very important point in church history. You know, they have this big debate, goes on for a while, and then Peter's the one who finally breaks, up, breaks out, and, he's, and he supports what Paul was doing in his ministry to the Gentiles. So Peter then comes back around, but I think really what, what shows that Peter got the message that Paul's rebuke really helped him was, remember the verse we showed you earlier about God's chosen people, Deuteronomy 7, 6? Well, Peter essentially recycles this verse. Now, Peter predominantly preached to the Jews, 
but he also had a ministry to the Gentiles, and that was his, uh, recorded in his epistles, First and Second Peter. And he's writing to Gentiles, and this is what he says. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The key words in this verse are the same as the key in, in uh, Deuteronomy 7, 6. So Peter finally got the message later on in his ministry, and he fully endorsed the Gentiles. So the message that we can take away from this is that Peter was a work in progress, and failure, we're all going to make mistakes, failure is not final unless you quit. Peter didn't quit. Failure is not final unless you quit. And like Peter, we're all a work in progress, no matter what stage you are in your life. The Bible says in Proverbs 27, it says, iron sharpens iron, and faithful are the wounds of a friend. And what those verses mean is that we, we need each other to keep each other in line, and sometimes we have to confront people and because Peter confronted, or excuse me, Paul confronted Peter, even though it wasn't pleasant, it was necessary for Peter and ultimately it had an impact on the future of the church. So we need each other. But the problem with Peter pulling back from uh, the Gentiles was driven by peer pressure. And, and whenever you make a mistake, you want to understand what the reason is. If you dig a little bit deeper, there may have been some bondage involved. And bondage is something that holds us back, that keeps us from having a deeper relationship with Christ or, or a more meaningful uh, service uh, for his kingdom. And I'm not a psychiatrist, but just a couple things that uh, I just wanted to point out to what may have been an underlying piece of bondage for Peter. And going back uh, to the passage in Mark, um, Jesus said he was going to go to the he was going to suffer and be rejected and um, be killed. And then Peter says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Well, every time I read that passage, I always thought that it was, on the, it was on the what. It was the focus on suffering and being rejected and being killed. And Peter was saying, look, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're Christ. You can do these miracles. You're not, this is not going to happen to you. And then as I was reading this again this week, I just happened to stumble across it, it was that same verse but it may not have been the what that Peter was talking to Jesus about. It may have been the who. Mark's gospel, he got his information, many scholars believe, from Peter. Because Mark and Peter did ministry together in Rome. And Mark probably got most of his information, all of his information for his gospel from Peter. So it's interesting that Peter provides this information to Mark. But what may have been going on when, when, G, when Peter went to Jesus and said, hey, you know, this isn't going to happen. What he may have been saying, and again, this is supposition on my part, is, look, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, look, we need these guys. They're, they're teachers of the law. We need them if we're going to overthrow the Roman government. See, that's what Peter was thinking. He was thinking in terms of earthly things. But he may have been holding an on-due respect for the religious leaders uh, of his day. Um, in the case where he denied Jesus three times, that was in the courtyard of the priest. He's surrounded by all those uh, spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel. He caves in to peer pressure. And then the Judaizers, again, these are smart people. They're very informed about the law. 
Many of them probably were, were Pharisees who had decided to sort of kind of follow Jesus, but Peter, being an uneducated fisherman, gave in. And so his bondage may have been that he, he just had an, an undue respect or an overzealous respect of the religious establishment or the religious values of his day. I think there's things in all of our lives that keep us in bondage. So a question for you is, what is it that keeps you in bondage? What holds you back? Is it your past religious heritage? Maybe it's hard to let go of tradition. Past sins. Maybe you think that your sins from the past are too great to let go of and and God can never use you. Or maybe you're holding on, you have hidden sins in your life. Maybe it's culture, and this is a tough one because we're all in a culture, and sometimes it's hard to see yourself objectively, but, but some cultures may hold um, different views about the role of women or the role of children, or they may hold an undue emphasis on respecting elders, which is not a bad thing, but elders, like the rest of us, make mistakes, and we need to be careful who we listen to. Maybe something keeping you in bondage is an unhealthy or sinful relationship. How about education? Some people may say, well, I don't have a college degree. I didn't go to seminary. That shouldn't stop you if God's calling you. And on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you are well-educated. Maybe you think you know more than you really do, and that can hold you back. Social status, again, no matter which end of the spectrum you're on, God can use you but don't use your social status as an excuse. And the last one I think all of us can relate to is fear. Fear creeps in in the middle of the night, you're laying awake in bed. Oh my goodness, I gotta do this. What about this? You know, I can't, you know. Fear, cast your fears to God. Don't live in bondage, set it free. All right, back to... The core of Galatians. So what was Paul's message to the Galatians? Well, Paul goes on to argue that Jews are made righteous by faith, just like the Gentiles. So he's saying the Jews and Gentiles are on the same footing. And the Jews should have realized this because, you know, in Genesis it says, God said to Abraham, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. All the families of the earth. Not just his descendants, but everybody. And then in Isaiah, he says, I will make you also a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Again, it's not just to the Jewish people. And when I kicked off this series, I said some of the reasons for false gospels is that people are ignorant of what the Bible says. The Judaizers obviously were not incorporating the whole message of the Bible about Jews and Gentiles being brought into God's kingdom. Paul makes two powerful statements in, in this chapter part of the chapter, and the first one is that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. Straight out, the relationship between the law and faith. And then he ends the section by saying, if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. And Paul was making these statements because the Jews were objecting to the emphasis that Paul was putting on faith in Jesus. You know, the law that they had so eagerly and zealously followed was being subjugated, was being put down. 
See, their concern was, like many people today, like when you become a Christian, it is through faith alone. There's nothing you can do to earn it. So what the, Gent- what the Judaizers were thinking was, well, if I just believe, then that doesn't make sense. Then I can live any way I want to live. And that wasn't obviously what, what Paul meant. And that's why Paul, every time I read this passage, I, it was always confusing me, but the reason why he, he wrote this was to address the Judaizers thinking. He says, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found to be sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. And what Paul is saying there is that nobody's perfect. We're all going to stumble. We're all going to fumble. We're all going to make mistakes. All right? But Jesus is not the reason for that. So the Judaizers, they were more concerned about living right, which is, is not a bad thing, but they had it out of order. They had, they had it misemphasized. And Paul was saying, no, we're going to, you know, we're still going to sin. We're still going to make up, make mistakes. So it seems like the point that the Judaizers and the Gentile or the Galatians may have been missing is the whole point of justification. We're justified by faith in Christ. And what we're justified, again, this is theology, so just bear with me for a couple seconds. It means, and listen carefully, it means to be declared righteous. All right, it means to be declared righteous. It does not mean that you are righteous or that you are perfect. Okay, huge, huge difference. All right, the Judaizers again, they were focusing on the end like, how am I going to live? But that's not what God is focused. God and Paul were focusing on the beginning. How do you enter into a right relationship with God? And it should be pointed out that. Paul never lowered the standards. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, that has always, that has never changed. But what I showed this slide the last time is, you know, in terms of salvation, a lot of people think you have to work and do good deeds in order to have salvation, and we said that was wrong. The Judaizers were like, okay, yeah, we, we believe in Jesus, but we also have to keep the law, and that'll give us salvation, and that too was wrong. The right answer is the third line there, which is, Salvation, it's by grace, uh, through God's grace, but through faith that we obtain salvation. Faith is what triggers our being declared righteous in God's eyes. And at that point, we obtain salvation. And also at that point, we get the Holy Spirit. And this is very important because the Judaizers, and the Jews for that matter, their righteousness, their good deeds was all driven externally by the religious leaders and also by the law. The Holy Spirit motivates and drives us from within. Because God's not so much concerned about what we do, it's why we do it. What's going on in your heart? All right, and that's where the Holy Spirit abides. That's where he is working to change our lives and to transform us. And speaking of transformation, what about the Apostle Paul? Now, before he became a Christian, I mean, Paul was a Jew, and he was a Jew on steroids. If you were to, if you were to look in, the, in a dictionary back in the first century, Jew, you would have saw his picture in there. I mean, he was a Jew of a Jew. Paul, um, Paul's identity was totally focused and centered around practicing all the details of Judaism. 
And Paul writes this about himself in Philippians. He says, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh or to put confidence in self-effort, Paul says, I far more. He says, circumcised of the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Nobody could find anything wrong with what Paul did. But then he met Jesus. When he met Jesus, Paul, Paul's world got turned upside down. He had to go away for three years and process what had just happened to him. He had to come to grips with everything that he had worked for previously in his life was now useless. And translations uh, use the word dung. Everything that Paul had worked for it was dung. It was poop. It was crap. It was useless. And that, must, that had to have been an extremely difficult transition to make. I mean, imagine, I mean, maybe today, you know, maybe you lost your job and you had to retool and re-educate yourself. Or maybe you went through a divorce or you lost a loved one or something, you know, that gaping hole in your life. I mean, your world gets turned upside down. And that's the kind of thing that Paul was dealing with. But Paul found a new identity. And in this passage... Galatians 2.20, it says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I think Paul gives us a glimpse of his heart. This, this verse is very real and very personal for Paul. Jesus is a living person. Jesus is a huge reality in Paul's life. Jesus is his life, really. Jesus meant everything to Paul. When Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, what he's saying, when we talk about crucifixion, we're speaking figuratively, but it, it means death or dying. And it was a death to the reigning power of sin in Paul's life. It was death to his ego. Paul's will was no longer his own. He was submitting it completely to Christ. Crucifixion was a very shameful thing. If, if you were crucified, it was, it, was, it was just awful. Paul was not ashamed to be associated with Jesus. And if you're thinking about shame, you're, thinking, you're concerned about what other people think of you, what also died was Paul's effort to try to appear righteous to others. You know, not putting on a facade. And also, for that matter, trying to look right in front of God. That died also. He says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in Paul through the Holy Spirit, the way Christ lives in each one of us through his Holy Spirit. Paul's life is no longer his own. It's no longer I, but Christ. Paul's enjoying a living relationship with Christ through faith as opposed to depending upon keeping rules and regulations. And Paul was just simply identifies himself with Jesus. And he says, oops, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. He was experiencing a whole new life because living by faith as opposed to works. Paul embraced faith instead of depending upon himself and self-effort as a means of pleasing God. Paul continuously lived trusting Jesus. 
And what that means is the, the, the verb live, I, I live by faith in the Greek, it's a present tense verb. And what that means is the actions of the verb are continuous and ongoing. It's not just you make a commitment to follow Jesus and that's it. We make decisions every moment of every day. I don't know about you, I, every moment of every day I have to decide how I'm going to live, how I'm going to respond to a situation, what am I going to say, what am I going to think. It's a continuous act. And Paul says, he ends this passage by, whoops, my thumb is misfiring. He describes Jesus who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul recognized that Jesus loved him. Paul recognized that Jesus died for him. Now, we've heard this, but when you realize that Jesus is God, it, it kind of takes on a whole new emphasis that, that the God who created the universe loves you and the God of the universe suffered and died for you. I mean, Paul had to recognize there's no way he could ever repay Jesus. And the best he could possibly do is to surrender to Jesus, to give him his life. I think I may have changed the, the slide in your bulletin, but the, this next uh, fill-in should be Paul's identity was Jesus, just pure and simple. His identity was Jesus. And what we can learn from Paul is that when you meet Jesus, when you truly meet Jesus, you will never be the same. You will never be the same. So what do we do? Like Paul, continuously living a life of faith, continuously surrendering every moment, every day, every situation, and choosing. Who are you going to live for? Life is about choices. Are we going to live for ourselves and our kingdom, or are we going to live for Him? And back to the question, what defines you? When people think of you, what words or image would come to their mind? And here's a sobering thought. What would people say about you at your funeral? And when people look at you, what do they see? Let's pray. Dearly Father, we come before you. We thank you.